Green Street Joinery and the American Craftsman Podcast are proud to partner with Montana Brand Tools. Montana Brand Tools are manufactured by Rocky Mountain Twist in Montana, USA. With numerous patents dating back to the invention of the Hexshank system by our founders, we strive to produce accessories that add precision, flexibility, and efficiency to your toolkit. In addition to woodworking tools, we produce many high-quality cutting tools that are used by the aerospace, medical, automotive, and industrial markets. Our end product has a fit and finish that is beyond comparison. Montana Brand Tools are guaranteed for life to be free of defects in material and workmanship because we build these tools with pride and determination. For 10% off your order, visit MontanaBrandTools.com and use the coupon code AmericanCraftsman. All right, here we go. Episode, uh, what is this? I, I think it's 12, 12 because we, we're one ahead of the, the, the nomenclature on the, on the notes. I see. <laughs> um, different scenery today. Yeah, back in the shop. Yeah. Well, uh, we won't waste your time explaining the reasoning why, but <laughs> here we are. Our comfy confines. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what are we covering today? We're talking about uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch and Amish furniture makers of note. The, the third <laughs> installment of our series on the styles usually delves into um, some of the famous makers. Yep. And... Uh, with this one in particular, I ran into a little bit of a hiccup because, um, because of the Amish mm-hmm. and you know and the Mennonites and and basically their beliefs. Uh, um, I can uh, sort of paraphrase some of my notes here, let you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, the the Amish, the Pennsylvania Dutch, if you will. They believe that community harmony is threatened by secular values such as individualism and pride, uh, which is part of the modern world. I mean, that's kind of what they're trying to separate themselves from. Even right. when we go back into the 1700s, it's still modern to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they curb their interaction and insulate themselves, uh, and they prohibit things like individualism, greed, uh, and I mean, it all sounds pretty idealistic and in light of today's society, doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> yeah, I say individualism maybe at a, uh, at a, a downturn at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it, it may be, have been on a downturn for a while, you know, with all the yeah. uniform wearing and signaling and all that mm-hmm. stuff, sure. Um, but so that's why they dress plainly and they don't like to have their photograph taken. Hmm. Um, uh, they don't even like to study the Bible individually. And, you know, the Bible's a big part of their right. their belief system. They don't want into into... Uh, individual interpretations. Um, they keep their buggies basically, you know, black, gray. Uh, they don't want to stand out. And one of the hallmarks of their belief system is humility. I can get down with that. So you could imagine that, you know, signing your pieces and, um, you know, trying to sort of aggrandize yourself individually that's kind of frowned upon right um uh they see conformity and all that stuff that's that's really their their highest goals so now you take all this in consideration and the fact that most of this stuff was utilitarian in nature mm-hmm. uh not really discovered so to speak until folk art becomes a thing in the 1920s um it was it's kind of hard to come up with examples of of guys that were um you know notable furniture makers yeah because to be amish and to be a furniture maker who you know identifies their furniture with themselves is in turn (laughs) Against the Amish belief system. Cutting against the grain, as right. we like to say. Um, yeah, they were encouraged to surrender their personal aspirations for the sake of community purity. Uh, 
That's right out of my notes. Um, so many of their pieces were not signed or easily attributed to a specific maker. And that's kind of what we um, did when we were, you know, digging back further in time before people start to become known makers like, um, you know, Heppel White and all mm-hmm. those dudes. Um you kind of looked at a style and that's why we had like schools of furniture, like the Rhode Island school, so to speak. Right. You know, where you could see people were building in a specific style. Um, here's a, here's a German hymn, you know, the Pennsylvania Dutch are basically of German origin. Um, it kind of, you know, sums up their belief. Humility is the most beautiful virtue the glory and honor of all Christians, for it adorns our youth and old age even more so. Um, you know, what can you say? I hope that sounds better in German. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a very good song. <coughs> that was funny. Songwriting, not the, the strong suit of the Amish. I wonder how they felt about melody. Yeah. Don't make it sound too good. <laughs> it might sound even worse. Um, no crops this year if that yeah. song sounds too good. <laughs> That's right. I mean, how do you think uh, that compares um, to the, what what we do nowadays? I mean, we kind we sign our stuff. I mean, but for yeah. kind of a different reason. We're sort of. Well, you go ahead and you could talk about why we put our stuff, our well, names on our stuff. It's more about um, like creating a legacy, mm-hmm. you know, and and the uh, the sort of surprise it could be for a person in the future, you know, to, you know, whatever, take these cabinets down or buy a piece of furniture and see, oh, oh Green Street Joinery, I wonder who they were and when, you know. When they were around. Right. Because cause we're kind of like nerds in that way. We If we peel off a piece of wallpaper and find out that the guy working on the you know the house was named John Brown, mm-hmm. 1850, we think that's kind of cool. So, you know, we sort of do it that way in hopes that one day somebody will just uh, be curious. And with the internet and everything the way it is, I guess this stuff is going to basically hang around forever, or at least as long as as people are, you know, running the internet. It'd be easy to just type in Green Street Joinery, and mm-hmm. you'll find something about us. Yeah. Unless they wipe us off the internet. <laughs> <by then. laughs> They're going on those conspiracy theories. Never say never. That's right. So, uh, so what do we do? I, I found a couple of people Mm -hmm. and even once I came across people's names, it was really a deep dive to get, get any info on these. Uh, one of the people I found, uh, was Henry Lapp. Um, I have a sketch here. I'm going to open it up so I could take a look at it. It's really rudimentary. Um, some drawings. It looks like it. I mean, it's bright colors. It's a couple of pieces of furniture. You could see the dovetails and the joinery illustrated. But if if your kid came home with this drawing from school, what grade would you say you'd be in? Fifth, <laughs> right? So <laughs> this is Henry Lapp. This the is, real perspective drawings, though. Yes, yes. So, um. This came out of his handbook, and we'll get into that. So Henry Lapp, his craftsmanship is long celebrated in the community, um, but it's not until the 1970s that he's quote-unquote discovered. By regular people. Yeah, Yeah. by the mainstream society. So um, we're talking about, what, 200 years almost? 1720s? uh, Yeah, 150 years. Yeah, Oh, no, 250 years? Yeah. Uh, 
I'm sure we'll get into his early life, get some real dates on there when he was around. Um, uh, Henry Lapp, as a person, get into it a little bit, he was deaf and partially mute. Hmm. Um, so he started making these sketches so he could communicate to his clients. Well, the <laughs> so, perfect Amish. Right. You can't be an individual if you can't talk or hear. Oh, oh man. So in the 50s, 1950s, uh, a descendant of Henry Lapp sold a bureau he'd made to a dealer. And inside one of the drawers was this little four and a half inch by eight inch soft cover book with uh, Henry's stamp on the cover. And in 1958, that handbook was donated to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Well, so it became uh, quite an important piece in the Amish lo- uh, storyline. I've been there. Oh, yeah, Philadelphia Museum of Art. Uh, as an adult or uh, no, no, when no. you were a kid in yeah, school? It was yeah, like a field trip. Yeah. Um, that's, we used to go to the, to the Met and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, in 75, a facsimile edition of his handbook of designs for furniture and household items was published by the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and the work of a 19th century craftsman was found. Hmm. So, so it was in the 1800s. Yeah, that's when uh, Lapp was. Well, yeah. Oh, 19th, 19th century. century craftsman. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, so, yeah, you could see I had to stretch out the... You know, the the timeline. Right. Not like a Chippendale where he was famous as a contemporary. Right. You know, somebody who didn't, wasn't known of until, you know, whatever, 150 years later. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so as, as we were able to see, his handbook is filled with drawings of chests, washstands, desks, boxes, even some games and toys. Basically utilitarian items for the home and the farm. This is this is what the Amish built. Yeah, I guess that one in the bottom left is a washstand. <laughs> Let's take a look. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, it's a, I think that's what it says. Wash, was it wash say? bench. Wash bench. Yeah. How you like the little wheels on that? On that green car. Yeah, it looks something out of a mine. <laughs> yeah, it says bureau, wash bench, something for something box. Right, yeah. Zoom in even more. Almost looks like it says hose or rose. Yeah, it might be something for gardening or something for L E. M-O, lemon box? Rose for lemon box. That makes sense. Huh. You guys have to check it out for yourselves. Yeah, Henry Lapp, L-A-P-P. Um, and it it'll definitely come up if you type in Henry Lapp's handbook, catalog, that sort of thing. Well, you get a link to it if you're a patron. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, there you go. That's that's worth the money right there. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy comes up with a catalog. Hmm. I mean, which is pretty cool. Uh, all because you know he had trouble communicating, and it's kind of a unusual. You think about it, almost ahead of his time. Yeah. I mean, we did get into um, you know the what are the gentlemen and. Uh, I can't even remember the name of the book. Uh, uh, no. It's right over there. The Cabinet Maker and, and Gentleman's, Gentleman's Guide. Yeah. Something like that. Um, but that was more for, a, that was a book aimed at professionals. Right. This is aimed at the, the user, the end mm-hmm. user. So this is, again, Henry thinking outside the box. As an Amish, we just went through what their belief system is. And Henry says, there's no reason... Boxes used for gathering fruits and vegetables can't be yellow and green, or for that matter, purple and green. You you want a seed cabinet? How about an orange and yellow combination? A red wagon? A green wagon? Yeah, he's, he's causing <laughs> trouble. So I say, given the aforementioned 
Amish humility and preference for blending in, might Henry Lapp's promotion of individuality make him somewhat of a rebel? Just saying, yeah, you know, if you weren't deaf and mute, we'd be, <laughs> we'd be, be throwing you a beating. <laughs> Take you out to the woodshed? Yeah. It's curious to think how Henry was, um, you know, thought of during his time. Like, yeah, Henry's a little slow. Um, my answer is yes and no. The Amish did employ bright colors and were known for painted decorations as well as their desire to not stand apart from the group. Um, so they, they kind of, you know, they, they had, we went over those hex signs. Those were colorful and typically they're known for their painted work, their painted pieces. Mm -hmm. So although it was usually, you know, like a, a monochromatic base color, they had some decorations, but, uh, Henry was just taken a little bit further. I guess he was kind of an entrepreneur. Sounds like it. Um, so let's uh, let's look at Henry's early history. He's born in 1862. Yeah, so he's almost uh, not a contemporary, but you know that's that's getting pretty uh, close to current times. Man, that's a hell of a time to be growing up. <laughs> you know, right in the middle of the Civil War, yeah, in an area of the country that was being torn apart by the Civil War. You're right. I mean, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. How close is Gettysburg? Exactly. And he's a fifth-generation Old Order Amish, so he's a pacifist. It's an interesting line of thought, you know, how that group tried to stay out of uh, all the conflicts. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I didn't even make that connection. Yeah, so maybe they were insulated from what was going on. Um, but you got to imagine troops are all over the place. Yeah. Taking up quarters in their homes, mm -hmm. probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so as we, we discussed, he was born deaf and at least partially mute. Um, and, uh, based on the number of paintings and stuff that have surfaced over the last 30, 40 years, he seems to have been at it from an early age. Mm. Um, he probably, you know, used it as a form of communication from early on. Yeah. Um, not being able to speak well, not hearing, Jeez. um, you know, you got to figure in, uh, in those times in that community, he, he was, a, you know, might've been considered an aberration, you know, who knows what, uh, the belief system was that yeah. Henry couldn't hear like, so he, he may have been somewhat ostracized. Yeah. <laughs> um, you think that the Amish, maybe they seem like they'd be a little more <laughs> tolerant of that kind of thing. Yeah. You, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. You know, could go either way. Right. Um, we don't know for sure if Henry learned his trade from his father or was apprenticed to a carpenter or cabinet maker. Um, but in 1890, in a local business directory, he's listed as a carpenter. Six years later, cabinet maker. So hmm. uh, let's see. So that's, so that's uh, 28. 28 years old, which I guess is midlife at that, that point in time. Yeah, maybe a little even more. Yeah. Um, uh, sometime before that, 1884, his, his father dies. His mom remarries. And Henry buys 10 acres of land from his stepbrother. Man, there's a lot going on. Um, and uh, this is where he builds his house, his barn, and his cabinet shop. Hmm. Uh, in an interview for an article in Folk Art Magazine, a family member, this is what's cool about the Amish. I mean, y you go out there and you're going to find relatives. Yeah. <clears throat> a family member said that if Henry was at a social gathering and happened to notice a rise in the wind, he'd leave and go out to his shop to cut lumber because it was powered by a windmill. Uh. So, I mean, I can think of somebody a little bit like that. <laughs> and he, 
any excuse to get away from a gathering. Yeah. It's like, oh, the wind's going. I got to get back and cut some lumber, man. I got that power going from my windmill. It's his passion. <laughs> but Henry's known to be friendly and outgoing, like to travel, visit relatives and Amish communities in Indiana, Ohio, and Canada. Wow. Um, I didn't know there were Amish in Canada. Yeah, I mean, well... Uh, where I go to fish in upstate New York, which is very, very close to Canada, there's a big Amish community up in Pulaski. Yeah, we got to go out there. We got to take a trip one day. Yeah, because um, it sounds really cool. We're getting to be steelhead <coughs> season pretty soon. Go out wading that ice cold water. Mm-mm. That's the part I wouldn't really look forward to. But being out. And that I I love being out in nature like that. It's nice in the when it's cold because there's nobody there. Yeah, that's true too. Um, so Henry, uh, despite everything that you know, uh, he's uh, he's dealt. He's really an outgoing guy, and he takes trips out to Philly, which is you know the uh, that's English mm-hmm. as the Amish call it, the outsiders to. Uh, you know, bring his pieces to market, picks up stuff to restock his hardware store, and he's picking up ideas when he get, goes out into the world. That's the, the <laughs> devil, the devil getting into it. That's him. dangerous, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> Henry's Handbook, uh, there's a facsimile edition of Henry's Handbook, and it's noted that his washstand designs were more typical of large urban houses. Hmm. So... Henry's definitely taking ideas that he sees in the outside world and incorporating them into Amish furniture. And listen to this. She also noted the carrot-shaped foot and bulbous rounded foot on some of his pieces were variations of models made in mahogany and rosewood by Philadelphia cabinet makers. And Henry's flat areas of color were more typical of Welsh settlers uh, rather than the painted figures of the old Germanic tradition. Well, so it yeah, doesn't I mean, sound like much to us, but yeah, I mean, most of the uh, the other Pennsylvania Dutch stuff didn't have these type of turned like little bun feet or whatever you want mm-hmm. to call them. They were integrated into the you know the base of the cabinet. Yeah, or they were just flat with a little bit of a, a cut scroll. Yeah. Um, it, so it, you know, it's, it's hard to put things in context sometimes when you, uh, look at historical, uh, notes and figures, but if you put yourself back in Henry's time in a, in a really, uh, insular community, which prizes all that stuff and guards against outside influences, he is a bit of a firebrand. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's cool that his his work survived. Uh, in in 1904, about six weeks before his 42nd birthday, Henry died of lead poisoning. Oh, oh from exposure to the paints he mixed. It, it, again, here you go. These are things that was he tasting it? <clears throat> I mean, it's the exposure. You and and you've brought this up before, like mad as a hatter. Yeah. The people who worked on watches and mm-hmm. things like that. People, you know, we were all um, exposed to these things back then. So Henry never marries and his estate is auctioned off. And it's, you know, maybe what in the 70s. So, but that bureau was sold in the 50s. Right. So, you know, 50 years after his death, he's kind of. Uh, creeping out into um, mainstream society's consciousness. Um, uh, The inventory of his shop includes chests, woodworking tools, circular saws, mortise cutter, mortising jack. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, Molding machines, grinding stones. Uh, And he, he had an apprentice, Noah Zook. Hmm. Which which he bought most of his shop and equipment and furniture patterns, and opened his own shop a few miles down on the Philadelphia Pike. 
so there you have uh, Henry Laugh, first uh, significant uh, guy. Yeah. Um, the next uh, group I found were the Biebers. No, rela- no, uh, no relation to Justin Bieber. <laughs> no, but Be- Justin Bieber's Canadian. Yeah. I guess uh, could be a Canadian he, Amish. He could be. Uh, yeah, he could be Amish. In uh, now, there's a close up of a Bieber chest. Looks much more traditional Amish, right? Yeah. If you look at those designs. Um, yeah, the hearts and the and the flowers. <clears throat> but that second chest, the one in color, that which is the really nice photograph. Oh uh, yeah, that's a, a pretty ornate piece of work. Pretty similar uh, design mm-hmm. in terms of the painting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what Jeff and I are looking at is uh, basically a, a rectangular chest. Three small drawers at the at the bottom ledge. Mm-hmm. Um, some simple bracket feet. Uh, flat top. Looks like some breadboard ends there. Mm-hmm. Can you see one on the right, or is that just Possibly. paint? Uh, no, it's a frame and panel top. It looks oh, like. Yeah. You go real close. Yeah, with yeah. Flush panels. Um, and some. Really detailed paint. You could see some columns in the front. Um, yeah, a little uh, urn with some flowers coming out of it. Got the Queen Anne style backplate hardware. Yeah. Dovetails in the uh, bracket feet. Some reds. Looks like either black or really, really dark green, right? Yeah. Does it say something there above the... Uh... Yeah. It almost looks like... I mean, that look, the third letter looks like a phi, like a Greek letter. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, 1789, it says there. Wow. Above that arch. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's almost like a hybrid of like a hope chest and like the the Hartford chest or the um what was the other one? The uh uh what were the ones they were making in Cambridge called? I forget. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't even notice that seventeen eighty nine. Me neither till I zoomed in. Um it, I mean it's obvious once you do notice it, but it's it's just so well done. Mm-hmm. Way it's uh, 200 years before I was born. <laughs> so the Biebers, father and son, were skilled craftsmen and sawyers. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, that's all I was able to find. <laughs> you know, those Biebers keep their secrets. I got a couple of notes. I didn't have any, any pictures from uh, uh, these folks, but... There were a couple of carvers. One was Wilhelm Schimmel, uh, and his story is very typical. That's definitely not a German name. (laughs) Wilhelm Schimmel. Born in Germany in 1817. Again, we're talking about, you know, early 19th century. Um, Immigrated to Pennsylvania, ended up in the Cumberland Valley uh, near Carlisle. Oh, yeah, I know Carlisle. You do? you? Yes. Yeah. Soon after the Civil War. Just a town full of truck stops now. <laughs> this is the best note of the whole <laughs> episode. <laughs> and uh, I'll quote directly. Schimmel was quite literally an alcoholic and from all accounts, a very vicious one. <laughs> in today's world, he would probably be in jail. Wow. Nonetheless, he had a genius for carving. So I don't know how the Amish uh, <clears throat> handle the alcoholism. Is it, is it a coincidence that the people that sort of um, made it into this segment have some sort of unusual characteristic? Yeah. Could be. Um, you know, the, the mainstream Amish, they're, they're working within the fold. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Schimmel, he was a genius carver, and maybe history remembers him because he was an alcoholic, you know, and right. there were exploits, you know, he, he was written about or yeah, remembered. Something happened, you know, yeah, he was right. a person of note because he was different than the rest of the yeah. Amishes. So Schimmel would go from barn to barn in the Cumberland Valley for a week or two at a time, and in return for food and lodging, he'd carve little animals, birds, roosters, and on a very rare occasion, because it was frowned upon, he'd carve a human likeness. Mm. Uh, you know, most often it was birds. He'd take little chunks of pine from the woodpile, uh, and with an ordinary knife, he'd carve them into shapes. He'd paint them with his own paints, and uh, in exchange, he'd stay in the barn. <laughs> so this guy... Really, He's a hobo. He, he was an Amish hobo. <laughs> An alcoholic one. Well, it goes along with being a hobo, I guess, a lot of times. <laughs> he did hundreds of pieces, most of them ending up in the fireplace after a few years. Oh, jeez. Uh, he dies in 1890. He's buried in a pauper's grave. Oh, man. And uh, again, 1950s, 60s, his work, the surviving work, starts to get recognized as folk art. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Even though it's late 19th century, curators and art historians determined that he was the true artist carver of Pennsylvania, whereas every carver who followed was doing it in a conscious attempt to be German. Huh. Um, yeah, I mean, the Germans are known for their, I mean, amongst others, but you think of like those Black Forest clocks and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so get this. Once uh, Wilhelm Schimmel's Relevance is established. Now we're talking 1950s and 60s. What was left of his work skyrockets in value. And 10 years ago, Bill Gates paid $50,000 for a Schimmel Eagle. Wow. Uh, today, it'd be around 100 to 150 grand. I wonder how big they are. Yeah, that's. If they're made out of firewood, I guess it can't yeah. be that big. That's pretty amazing, right? Yeah. Uh, if. Poor, poor Wilhelm, <laughs> sleeping in the barn. Yeah, you reap the seed you sow. So that kind of wraps up everybody I was able to find mm-hmm. some, uh, you know, some notable information on. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to wrap up this episode with a little bit of Amish cuisine. Mm. Um, we ate some Amish cuisine once. <clears throat> did you? No, we did. Oh, yeah. What did we have? We went to Shady Maple oh, Smorgasbord. Right. Yeah, that's when we picked up the Powermatic. That's right. You ever hear a shoe fly pie? Yeah, I ate it at Shady Maple yeah. Smorgasbord. Now, it's related to Jenny Lind pie, which I never heard of, but probably originated among the Pennsylvania Dutch. It's a molasses crumb cake. Mm. And... uh Traditionally served not as dessert, but as a breakfast food with hot coffee. Yeah, that's a good combo. Yeah, yeah. The modern form of shoe fly pie as crumb cake served in pie crust was post-Civil War um, when cast iron cookware and stoves made pie crust more accessible for home cooks. It's also known as molasses crumb pie. Hmm, I never saw it as like crumb cake inside of a pie. yeah. Um, Seems more like almost like pecan pie with no pecans. Yeah, the, all the pictures I found, it made it look like you know it had that sort of gelled yeah. filling, and it did have a crumb yeah, topping. Yeah. yeah. So to the unfamiliar, such as myself, the filling looks like oh, the yeah. gooey part of a pecan pie without the nuts. I'm getting ahead of the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is how you know that I haven't read this. <laughs> That's right. This is off the cuff. The toppings are fine crumb, like and shoe fly recipes that I checked out didn't use any eggs. Mm. Uh, where do you think the name shoe fly comes from? Well, it's because it's so sweet they had to shoe the flies away. <laughs> that's yes, it was a brand of molasses, but that's probably why the molasses was called mm. shoe fly. Um, this is a surpriser. 
Chicken and waffles. When you hear chicken and waffles, what do you think? Yeah, I think of Harlem. Yeah, exactly. Soul food, southern. Um, chicken and waffles as a combined recipe first appeared in the United States colonial period in the 1600s in Pennsylvania Dutch country. Mm. Wow. So it's it's much, much older than I imagined. Yeah. And... Not in the same region, I imagined, either, or in the same community. Oh, in a slightly different uh, style. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Pennsylvania Dutch, they put pulled chicken, stewed chicken on top with gravy. Mm. They probably had sort of like a not-sweet waffle, I'm imagining, too, huh? Yeah. Uh, so... It, it originates in Pennsylvania Dutch. Now, the version we're all familiar with using fried chicken is, you know, definitely associated with soul food and the South. And uh, the first version of that I could find appears uh, at the Wells Supper Club in Harlem, right? What you're talking about in 1938. And... A last little bit of Amish cuisine. You tell me if you've ever heard of this. I haven't. Cup cheese. Pizza in a cup. (laughs) Cup cheese is a soft, spreadable cheese rooted in Pennsylvania Dutch culinary history. Its heritage dates back to the immigration of the Mennonites and Amish to Pennsylvania in the late 17th century. So, 1600s. It's... Can you say this? The variation, it's a variation of a German cheese. Uh, Kokase? And it's it's simply called cup cheese because they sold it in a cup. And it resembles brie. But... What's this brie? <laughs> What's this brie cheese? Uh, the flavor resembles brie, which sounds really good. Uh, Although, for whatever reason, they say it smells stronger than Limburger with the gluey consistency of molasses. Hmm. Here, I got the pronunciation right here. Cockkäse. 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 Hopefully you guys can hear that. The mic is facing the... uh, Yeah. Not facing the computer. Hmm. I like the sound of that. Yeah, I mean, if it tastes like brie, I'd be all for that spreading that on some bread, you know, like. Yeah, or some crackers. Yeah, back in the oh, days. Oh, man, did you see the pictures of it? No, what do you got? Was this a YouTube video? A YouTube video on uh, cup cheese? No, YouTube. Unique Susquehanna Valley Foods cup cheese. They're still selling it, I imagine. Yeah, well, it is a video. When I discovered Fiverr, actually, oh. it was just... I had to mute that because we don't want to get any copyright infringement, oh, but... Oh, yeah. Oh, look at that. Yeah, they're still making it. Wow, the... it is really creamy. Yeah. I mean... It almost looks like creme anglaise or something. Yeah, it's... I mean... You could describe it as thin, but if you're using it as a spread. Look at that weak little bite that guy took. Get in there, you bitch. Let me just take a nibble off the corner. Shanks. Cup cheese. Yeah, I mean, they're dispensing it out of a. Right, like almost like a soft serve kind of thing, huh? Hmm. That looks good. Yeah, yeah. That seems to be the brand, Shanks. Yeah, it's all over. See if we can order some. Wow. Yeah, you know what that would be good on, too, if it tastes like brie? Anything. Yeah, like you could pour it over, like, some vegetables or something like that. Oh, that's a good way to ruin some uh, cup cheese. (laughs) Oh, man, you you get 12 of them for $60. Mail order. Now, now Sorry, sixty two ninety nine. Now we know what our secret Santa's getting. Yeah, sharp. <laughs> Perfect accompaniment to bologna or crackers. <clears throat> Resembles that of a medium French brie. Consistency is slightly runny and features a pale yellow color. Comes in a resealable container, 8-ounce container. Ships refrigerated. Wow. 
View all Shanks Foods cheese spreads. They got sharp, mild, and medium. Mm. All the same price. It'd be nice to get like a combo pack. I'd just get a case of each. It'd be a nice dip, you know, like chips and stuff like that. Yeah, a little cocktail wieners. Mm. Put it on a sandwich. Yeah. Yeah, like a nice roast beef sandwich. Mm. Smoked turkey. Oh, yeah. Now that sounds good. I'm going to have to get some of this for Christmas. Put out 12 of these little cups on for the Christmas spread. Mmm. So if you had a pick between shoe fly pie, chicken and waffles, or cup cheese. Um, you know, when I had the shoe fly pie, it, it like, you, I spent my whole life hearing about shoe fly pie. And then when I finally had it, it was kind of like not as good as, you know, the hype. It didn't meet the hype. Yeah. Um, look, Shanks Foods opens up pretty soon, 9 a.m. 1980 <laughs> New Danville Pike, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, right next to Millersville the Bible Church. Is, we're, we're not that far away. Right? No, it's like two hours. Yeah, we could drive to these places. I mean, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the shoe fly pie, it didn't really live up to the hype. And the, their thing of chicken and waffles, I don't know how I feel about that with stewed chicken. I'm sure it's good, but... Mm -hmm. I don't need a waffle if you're going to put gravy on top. It's, just, yeah. it's going to ruin the whole uh, what's good about the waffle, which is the crispiness. So I'm going to go with cup cheese, even though I've never had it. Um, I'm going to agree. <clears throat> uh, I would definitely go for chicken and waffles in the soul food version. Because mm -hmm. I'm a sucker for fried chicken. Oh, yeah. And crispy waffles as well. Um, I, You know, when I was a kid, did you ever have waffles and ice cream? Um, I think I may have. That's kind of an Italian thing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you get like a nice crispy waffle and mm -hmm. a scoop of ice cream on Is it there. a thin waffle? Well. Not a Belgian waffle. No, yeah. no. It, Just like a regular waffle. Yeah. Um, I prefer, the, I, I prefer those over Belgian waffles. Yeah. The, the ratio of <clears throat> soft to crunchy and the Belgians all messed up. <laughs> Like, I want, like, a Waffle House kind of style waffle or, like, an Eggo, you know, like a thin, thin waffle. Yeah, you got me wanting some waffles now. Yeah. I have a waffle iron, but it is a Belgian waffler. It's a single, but it's got deep crevices. Yeah. So. That helps. It does It does come out pretty crispy. The worst are, like, some places at, like, <clears throat> in Disney World, I think they have the one that's got, like, the Mickey Mouse. And then oh, it's yeah. completely flat. Yeah. Then, no, no. Yeah, my my waffle iron has really deep things. Like, so if you pour syrup in there, it's like, Filled you up. know, twenty little swimming pools mm -hmm. of syrup. Yeah, huh. it's got to be real maple syrup too. <clears throat> oh yeah, corn syrup shit. Um, yeah, I I I feel like having some waffles now. Yeah, we we'll have to go back out to Shady Maple. Mm. If you guys aren't familiar. Most of you probably aren't because you're not from around there or around. I guess if you're from around here, you don't know about it either. But Shady Maple Smorgasbord. Let's see if, uh, if they have any little fact sheet on it. Shady Maple Smorgasbord. It's in East Earl, Pennsylvania. So when we went out to pick up the uh, um, uh, Powermatic Planer, we were about 20 minutes away. So we went out there for lunch. Mm, I Let's still remember. See about us. Learn about Shady Maple. Shady Maple Farm Market. That's all. We want to know about the Shady Maple Smorgasbord is a unique mm. dining experience that is built around creating great traditions with friends and family. For one price, we offer the largest selection of popular Pennsylvania Dutch cooking, as well as a vast amount more of other fabulous cuisines. We pride ourselves in being the largest buffet on this side of the United States. And we are eager to continue to grow. We serve nearly 1.5 million people every year and around 100,000 free birthday meals as well. We hope to see you here. That description doesn't do the place justice. Yeah, it's, uh, I want some stats. I mean, How many linear <laughs> feet of, uh... There's so much food there and so much food that you want. Mm -hmm. It's not like one of those things where it's 
a thousand items and only like seven that you'd eat that you can't eat everything you want. Yeah. Oh, look, they got a fun facts page. Years in business, 34 years. This is circa 2019. Uh, smorgasbord, 110,000 square feet. <clears throat> that doesn't include the 44,000 square foot gift shop. Oh yeah. We spent about 45 minutes down there. <clears throat> that, that plant we bought is, is, Driving, actually. Yeah. Wait, the what? Didn't we buy my wife a plant? No, you got her that statue of the flower, the <laughs> bird lady. Shady Maple employees, employ, employs, it says employees. Shady Maple employs more than 800 full-time and part-time people annually. The in-house bakery employs more than 100 people. Yeah, there's tons of baked goods. I mean, I had some peach pie. Main dining area can seat 1,200 people while the banquet room can seat about 850. 3,000 eggs for omelets were served to customers on Saturday mornings. Each Saturday, 800 pounds of bacon are served. More than 300 pounds of Delmonico and New York strip on steak night. On prime rib night, we use 65 pieces of rib. Buffet lines, about 200 feet of food. Four separate six-foot wide grills. They're solar powered. Wow. 2016, they started switching to LED lighting. J.D. Maple Foundation supports more than 60 organizations annually. Food and financial donations are used to help these organizations and their causes. Look at this. Zook. Aaron and Abner Zook, local Amish twins, learn the art of woodworking as young children. How does this come around like this? As adults, they mastered the art and began creating incredible 3D sculptures and artwork. Marvin Weaver purchased and collected more than 25 pieces of these fascinating works of art. The smorgasbord building is decorated with these pieces that range from an Amish barn raising to to a one-room schoolhouse. Noah Zook. they got to be related. The apprentice of, of Henry Lapp. You see, people? <clears throat> wow. Aaron and Abner Zook. Now, yeah, type it in, see if uh, see what we can get going. Aaron and Abner Zook, Wikipedia. Uh, 1921 to 2003 and 10 were Amish identical twins and visual artists known for their 3D blah, blah, blah. Lancaster, Pennsylvania to Amos and Annie Zook. Brothers became well known for their artists, known as artists for their 3D paintings. Hmm. Doesn't say. Doesn't say if they're related to Noah. No. But uh, they, I mean. If you had ancestry, <laughs> you could probably look it up. Yeah. With the last name like Z-O-O-K, Zook. And, you know, they're. Amish. They're, yeah, so. <laughs> In the trade. They ain't spreading the, spreading <clears throat> the genealogy around too uh, liberally. No, they're de- they're definitely related. Well, let's see. Maybe I'll type that in, and then uh, what was it? Noah Zook. Yeah. What are the odds? That's crazy. Um, not seeing anything, but. Wiki tree, descendants of Eli Zook. Okay, eighteen seventy-two. Yeah, I see an Eli Zook there. When was Noah Noah Zook? Right here, January eighteen seventy-nine. Yeah. Blah blah blah. Well, Noah was Henry's apprentice, and Henry dies. 1904, he buys the shop. So you got to figure... That makes sense. 1879, he'd be 2025. So this is saying that Noah Zook is the brother of Gideon Zook, who is the father of Amos Zook, (laughs) who is the father of... Wait, no, this is Abner... I don't see an air in there. I don't know. 
I can't find definitive proof, but we're going to go ahead and say they're related. They're definitely related. I'd bet on that. Being that they're Amish. And they got the same last name. Yeah. They're definitely related. I mean, there's not going to be two lines of Zooks that aren't related. Probably not. Well, I don't think we could end on any higher of a note than that. No, that was all right. We're going to head into the after show. Yeah. Um, If you're hearing this Friday morning, you may still have time to sign up for the Secret Santa. Uh, The signups end today. I don't know. It's it's all done automatically through this thing. So I don't know what time it's happening. But um, if you want to try and get in, try and get in. If not, well, you're going to have to wait till next year. Um, but yeah. Oh, vesting finishes. Check them out. Uh, rpmcodingsolutions.com. Coupon code American Craftsman. Get yourself some nice finish. Help support the podcast. If you, uh, if you buy something, we'll get a little <coughs> bit of a slice back, which is nice. But more importantly, it's a good finish. We like it. We, we just use the over here. We have some stuff for the church. We use their single coat finish, which you've seen the LED. This is uh, just a regular hard wax oil, same kind of shit as a Rubio or a, or a Odie's oil or a Osmo, um, a single coat hard wax oil. And uh, yeah, that's all I got. I like it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like the LED and I like the single coat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the Rubio-esque, you know, single coat, mm-hmm. I'll call it. It tends to go on a little bit easier for yeah. my uh, money, we'll call it. Yeah. I, I like it a little bit more. I don't have to work it in as hard, press mm-hmm. as hard on it, yeah. which, you know, saves the fingers. Oh, yeah. Tell me about <laughs> it. What were you doing? <laughs> what were you finishing? The, the ladder. Oh, yeah. The wine library ladder. <laughs> and the shelves. All that. Three coats. <laughs> Get hand cramps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, uh, this stuff goes on pretty easy. Yeah. We should be getting some colors soon of the LED to try out. I'm yeah. looking forward to that. I like yeah. to create a, a sample board of what we could do mm-hmm. with those uh, LED finishes. Yeah. I was really missing the LED finish this time around, I have to say. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of having to set things to the side and yeah um, we're it's we're using this because we're matching up with old <coughs> old work so yeah uh well we'll leave you guys with that and we will see you next week take care guys <laughs>